Welcome to the final draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation features Xiang Lu. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Each week, I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. At Final Draft, we're dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands, that a treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Today, I'm being joined on the show by Siung Lu. Siung is the award-winning author of The Whitewash and the co-creator of The Beige Index. More on that later. Now, Brood Empire was meant to be a landmark for Asian representation in Hollywood. Its $350 budget and a lead, who looked like he'd been carved from stone, made it the film that would break through. Put all the subtle and overt racist stereotypes to bed. Instead, production was dogged from the start. The lead got pulped in an ill-advised cage fight, and the whole set leaked worse than Tom Holland on a bender. The Whitewash presents the unofficial history of the rise and fall of Brood Empire, detailing the film industry's unseemly demise, but its origins in the annals of racist representation of Asia and Asians throughout the 20th century of filmmaking. Join me as we discover Siang Lu's The Whitewash. Siang, amazing to have you here. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here. Siang is an award-winning author of The Whitewash and the co-creator of The Beige Index. He has been forced to deny rumours that he is the secret author of Huxtable Heights, a hashtag MeToo work of underground literature that mashes up Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights and The Cosby Show by replacing all of Heathcliff's original dialogue with lines uttered by Heathcliff Huxtable, also known as Bill Cosby. Siang's fiction and literary reviews have appeared in Southerly and Westerly. He holds a Master of Letters from the University of Sydney. He has written for television on Malaysia's Astro Network. And on a personal note, he has made me laugh out loud more times than seems fair over the last week of reading The Whitewash. I am getting the feeling, I've taken that bio from uh, from your website, and I'm getting a feeling you have a real sense of the obtuse in the world. I googled, I couldn't find it. Tell me, what is Huxtable Heights and this incredible sense you have of the way the world mashes up together? Yeah, it's... Um a work that will probably never see the light of day. Um, legally speaking, it's sort of a minefield, but uh, the, the basic idea is just, as you said, it's, it's a mashup of Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights and uh, the Cosby show. And the, the link there, the kind of dumb brainwave that I had was that uh, Heathcliff Huxtable, sorry, Heathcliff in, um, in Wuthering Heights shares a name with Heathcliff Huxtable, who, AKA Bill Cosby in the, in the Cosby show. And so I just uh, started thinking about this idea of like removing every single bit of dialogue of Heathcliff in the original book and then replacing it with context appropriate, but just completely wacky non sequiturs, um, you know, from Bill Cosby in, in the Cosby show. And uh, I actually wrote it um, and it took it took a little while. I watched the whole show, um, but it was, yeah, it was extremely fun. And in some ways, kind of like a precursor to the level of research and uh, maybe discipline that I'd need to write and research the, the whitewash as well. 
That is incredible. I, I will confess that um, in a former life, Wuthering Heights was was really probably one of my favourite novels. Um, and I really have had to kind of revisit it to understand that Heathcliff is an enormously controversial character. This is not a model for anyone. Um, and I kind of love that you're making that just a little bit more explicit in your, um, in your retake. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, one of the I think I read a blurb uh, from Wuthering Heights that described Heathcliff as a black villain, and this was really around the time of all of the Me Too stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Cosby, you know, uh, unsealed depositions, and I mean, I think a big part of me wanting to write that and research that was just dumb energy, like just really thinking this will make me laugh, um, kind of like the Beige Index. Um, but also it was really serious as well. Um, I'd committed to making sure that every single line of dialogue of um, Heathcliff actually um, came from the Cosby show. Uh, that was really important to me. But um, I think uh, in literature and in good literature, lit- lit- sorry, in good literature, sometimes you do have to break the rules. Um, and there was one like time that I broke that rule, which is um, uh, a quote directly from Bill Cosby in the unsealed deposition. And it's really confronting. Um, it's extremely uh, graphic. It's not funny in the slightest. And I think that was really the point of the book itself. Um, so it was really fun to write. Um, and I mean, to me, I think it was quite funny, uh, but there is really a, quite a serious heart to it as well. So it does share the same DNA as the whitewash. Two things. I am now just going to put a Google alert for Huxtable Heights in case this ever leaks online because I just you've sold me. I want to read this. And two, yeah, you you have talked about the the parallels with the work on the whitewash. I want to orient people a little bit as best as best I can, and then ask you a little bit about this incredible book. So, in the universe of the whitewash, Brood Empire was meant to be a landmark for Asian representation in Hollywood, with a $350 million budget and a lead who looked like he'd been carved from stone. This would be the film that broke through and put all the subtle and overt racist stereotypes to bed. Instead, production was dogged from the start. The lead got pulped in an ill-advised cage fight, and the whole set leaked worse than Tom Holland on a bender. The whitewash is the unofficial history of the rise and fall of Brood Empire, detailing not only the film's unseemly demise, but its origins in the annals of racist representation of Asia and Asians through 20th century filmmaking. That's that's barely scratching the surface, saying there is so much going on in this novel. Meta barely begins to describe it, with reality layering on satire, on social commentary. Where, though, did this all begin for you? Um, I think it was, well, two things. First, um, the title that really just kind of descended on me like a gift. I was like, well, I have to write a book called the whitewash. I like, I don't know what, what, uh, sort of form it will take. Um, but, uh, that, that was one thing. And I was kind of percolating on that for a little while. Um, and the other thing was, uh, just an image. So this image was, or an idea of, um, you know, in in recent times in the film industry, we have seen a pattern of um, 
kind of really ill-advised remakes mm. um, of classic films. Uh, and sometimes they're even sort of shot for shot. Uh, and so I think the idea that I had was a shot for shot remake of Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon. Mm. Um, although, and this is re- the really important bit, that the actor that was sourced for the film was actually called Bruce Lee, but L-E-I-G-H. Um, and that, like, just that idea made me laugh um, a lot. And I thought, well, I just have to write that. Mm. Um, and I mean, it, it ended up in the book, um, probably not as prominently as I thought it would be, but I just kept pulling the strings and yeah, eventually um, the book came out. <laughs> I'm not much of a cinephile. So as I was reading, I, I realized that I was only vaguely aware of much of what you discussed. In fact, there were, to be honest, young, there were moments where I, I kind of had to fact check, not fact check you. I had to check what was fact and what was fiction. And I wasn't like, I was aware of whitewashing, but I wasn't aware of how pervasive this thing that we you're calling whitewashing well not you're calling whitewashing that we call whitewash is can you can you orient us help orient the listener with some standouts that we might know of whitewashing in film yeah i think the most probably the most um publicized and recent um uh examples of whitewashing are definitely sort of Scarlett Johansson in Ghost in the Shell, uh, the, the remake. I think that was in 2017. That was also one of the touch points for me. I remember sort of thinking about this project around that time. And when I look back, it was maybe one of the, you know, inspirations, just that idea of like, whoa, hang on. Like, this is this is 2017. How is this still happening? Um, so that was a, like, that was a film where in the original source material, uh, the the character was Japanese mm-hmm. and um, cast they they'd cast Scarlett Johansson um, and this that didn't actually um, uh, turn out to be in the film but I did hear that in the pre production they had experimented with CGI on um, Scarlett's eye shape um, and yeah I mean it was just one of those things that was like whoa how is this still happening um, you know there's um, uh, Emma Stone uh, in a Cameron Crowe film. I'm forgetting the name now, uh, but she was actually cast as a Hawaiian, I think Hawaiian Chinese character called, um, uh, I'm so, I kind of dropped from my memory, but the it surname probably was- doesn't matter. Uh, like Emma Stone's mm-hmm. the whitest you can get. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the point is that they essentially cast the whitest uh, actress as an Asian character. Mm. Um, and, uh, I mean, to be honest at the start of, um, sort of the writing process, I hadn't really thought too much about whitewashing. Mm -hmm. I really didn't know that much about it. Um, but I did know that it started with Fu Manchu, uh, in the 1920s. So that was actually, uh, originally a literary creation. Uh, I think in in the 1910s, somewhere around there. And during the birth of cinema, um, sort of became this enduring icon. So for those um, listeners who don't know Fu Manchu, he's kind of the original, you know, James Bond baddie. Mm. He's like the archetype for Dr. No um, and any any number of just megalomaniacal, you know, bad guys with uh, caves and volcano lairs and, and things like that. Um, so... 
uh, yeah, Fu Manchu, he's like, he's the kind of mustachioed, um, you know, long coke nails, uh, tall and thin, uh, famously portrayed by Christopher Lee in the 1960s. And so that's, that's a character that's endured for, I mean, decades, um, but it really started there. Uh, and from there sort of moved on to Charlie Chan. I mean, the, there's any number of um, examples of whitewashing. I think it really reached its apex in the 50s and 60s um, and uh, probably has gotten a lot better. I, I like to say that, but then you, you look at, you know, the things with Scarlett Johansson and Ghost in the Shell and you, you really do wonder. And I guess, um, I mean, I can't speak to what was going on in the 20s, the 30s, 50s, 60s. But in a culture of ignorance, these, despite these, these being incredibly exaggerated and fictional um, iterations or depictions, they can really take hold in the cultural psyche. I mean, we're talking about, a, a, you know, America and then I guess by proxy places like Australia who are receiving American culture. These become what people associate with... I want to use in scare quotes what Asian people are like. Um, yeah, and that, and that's I think uh, yeah yeah. I mean, any uh, not just Asian people, but any number of things, anything. In fact, yeah. um, I think we you don't need to be a cinephile to understand the concept that what we're seeing on the screens is purportedly the reflection of our reality. Mm. Um, and so if that's distorted by a particular lens, a uh, particular gaze, then that really shapes the way we think and the way that we interact with whatever that is. Mm. In the whitewash, you take us through the history of, of representation or, or lack thereof, and you've just given us a little bit of it there. Uh, and through the characters, we get this sense um, that with the film Brood Empire and with... Um, with this production, there's a building momentum that this could be the moment where an Asian male lead breaks through. You contrast this, though, with the rise of particularly the Chinese market and the the financial and social pull that it exerts in getting productions made and, and how they're made. And I really wondered, like, can you talk to me a little bit about how we should be looking at the shifting sands of cultural influence in cinema and where it's heading? Hmm. Yeah, that's um, particularly a passion of mine. I know that it's not necessarily shared um, widely, but I did kind of put that in the structure of the book. So it's um, it's split into three acts. Um, the first act is America. The second act is Hong Kong. And the third act is China. Um, and that was really to sort of reflect the progression um, of influence around representation in film over time um obviously it begins with america hollywood is so dominant um but I, I really think that um you know not only martial arts films but blockbuster films generally that have some component of action to them um you know whether it be john wick or inception um, you know, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, they've really not just taken a page, but like the whole book from Hong Kong cinema. I'm talking about um, martial arts, uh, stunt work, uh, but also wire work, which you see 
well, you don't see is the point, um, but features quite heavily in a lot of Marvel films as well. Mm. Um, and then moving on to um, uh, Gun Fu, which is sort of the John Woo, you know, double handguns jumping through the air. I mean, that's very much in play with John Wick. Um, and so that really fascinates me, just the idea that, you know, Hollywood, and I take it as a compliment that Hollywood has seen a way forward. This is around the 90s, the 80s and 90s, looking to all of the advancements that Hong Kong film has made in cinema, in action cinema, and really just um, importing all of the techniques, all of the talent, mm. uh, and, you know, changing cinema forever, really. Like, you, you look at the... Um, uh, I don't want to get too deep into this, but if you look at, you know, what is the maybe the forefather of the modern action film as we think of it today, I mean, there, there are a number of candidates, but one of them definitely is The Matrix. Uh, and that is highly, you know, highly influenced by Hong Kong cinema. Um, every single one of those elements that I talked about, the Kung Fu, the Waifu, the Gun Fu, it's all in The Matrix. And then that then becoming the blueprint of modern Hollywood blockbuster filmmaking, it's it, it's it's incredibly interesting to see the DNA of Hong Kong film in Hollywood film now. Mm. Um, and then just quickly moving on to Act Three with China um, and how um, this this sort of like we, we've been shifted by the tides of. Uh, commerce essentially mm. uh, China is now the number one film watching market um, and I think it was in 2012 that they surpassed Japan as number two uh, and it's just been this crazy rise yeah. uh, I could be wrong on that but uh, so don't quote me but um, they're an in incredibly huge market um, and uh, there was there was definitely a period around the 2010s um, and maybe less so uh, recently, but it's de definitely still in effect where Hollywood was pandering to uh, Chinese censors and the Chinese market uh, in order to really just untap that golden tap, um, you know, of, of the Chinese, um, Chinese money and Chinese box office. You've talked, uh, and I think a lot of people can relate to the influences that we're seeing um, but still in a, a very American and Hollywood-centered film um, film production uh, arena, could you see a, a day anytime in the future where, say, Aussie box offices are being Aussie box offices are being topped by productions that are outside the the white so-called Western sphere? Can you um, reframe that question? Not quite getting it. Of course, yeah. So, um, and look, I, I will acknowledge, not a cinephile, don't really know who's topping the the, um, the box offices, but um, we still very much are, you know, we're talking about uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's um, upper age limit for, for partners yeah. and the scandal between Chris Pine and Harry Styles. We still very much focus our lens of, um, of film and the cult of celebrity around that kind of Hollywood generating machine. Could you see a day when productions from, say, mainland China are topping Australian box offices? Oh, and, okay, yeah. And yeah probably not, to be honest. Mm. Um, I think I could be wrong, um, but just, 
you know, casting my mind back to um, a film called The Great Wall. I can't remember exactly when it was uh, produced. I think 2016-ish. Is that the Matt Damon um, one? It is the Matt Damon film, <laughs> and it is um, a terrible film. Um, it's a film that is all about the white savior narrative. Mm. Uh, I think plenty of people involved in the production would probably disagree with that, but that's the way that I saw it. Um, and it's basically Matt Damon going to, you know, sa- uh, save the great wall, um, uh, the great wall of China. Um, and I think if you look at, at that film being a failed experiment, but really something that, is indicative of, and this is going to be huge generalization, but indicative of how foreign markets, when I say foreign, I mean non-Hollywood, look at the prestige of Hollywood, is that they're still desiring the white face. Um, And I think that's not really going to change. Um, So I could be wrong, but yeah, we'll see. Look, I mean, I again, I don't know enough to speak authoritatively, but I, I'm I'm just going to agree with you. Um, and saying that brings us to J.K. Jr. and Chase Donovan. You've created this incredible ensemble cast. It feels a little unfair to single just one out, but then J.K. Jr. is begging for more exposure. Um, his character is the anchor for Brood Empire, and I think by proxy the Whitewash. <laughs> and it, it's he's seemingly going to be he's going to be this crossover hit for representation. He's also the author of his own demise and sort of his own resurrection. It felt like he was occupying this liminal zone of, on one hand, edgy cool, and on the other, the model minority sort of concept that we have. Um, Who is J.K.? Tell me, though. Who is J.K. Jr.? And what does he represent for you? Yeah, I think you you hit it the nail on the head with um, liminal zone. I think JK is, you know, he's a very charming, attractive, conventionally attractive, um, tall, muscular. I mean, everything that you want in a leading man, he happens to be, he's also Asian. Uh, He grew up in the West. And so he's one of those, I think much like, uh, us, me and my friends, just kind of growing up, code switching a little bit. Um, you know, when you're in Asia, you're more Asian or among Asian friends. And when you're in, you know, Western context, you're more Western. Um, and it occurred to me that if we ever did have a kind of a breakthrough star, um, that was an Asian leading man, it would probably be someone who grew up like that. Um, who had all of the appeal to the Western audience, but was very much, um, uh, I don't know, I guess himself, um, someone who really thought about where they fit in. Um, so, uh, I mean, he is, he is conventionally a leading man, uh, and with that come all of the, I guess, negative traits. He's very vain. Uh, he's quite arrogant, um, and but he is very charming. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think one of the things that I was really dead set on in writing a book called The Whitewash that is a satire um, that is supposed to poke fun at the primarily the film industry and the way that you know the white gaze looks at um, Asians and Asian cinema and 
all sorts of things, is really that though the whitewash happens to JK Jr., mm. he really shouldn't be a victim, uh, if that makes sense. I didn't want this to be a sob story. Oh, us all poor Asians, you know, we haven't been properly represented. It, it wasn't really about that. And so I don't want to give too many sort of plot details away, but a lot of the 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 challenges that he has to suffer through that actually result in the whitewashing itself is really stuff that he brought on himself. Um, and a lot of his redemption uh, through, I mean, support from uh, the supporting cast is also his doing as well. Um, and I thought that would give uh, JK Jr. He's not a perfect example of, um, you know, the model minority, but it, he, he, he is, I don't know, maybe the hero that I need. <laughs> I loved, like, I, I loved him. I was really rooting for him. Um, and I, I also want to get to this incredible ensemble cast, but as you were speaking there, I had a, I had a sudden flash about, um, I guess the way we're, we're generally using this term whitewash in the, in the sense of, to, to put it bluntly, putting a white face on non-white representation, but it came to me, you are actually making a really subtle nod to, I guess, the importance of the cultural artifacts that are being whitewashed. And it was staring me right there. An incredible uh, and important part of the whitewash is the character of, of Eric Dutton, who has been brought in. He is adjunct, adjunct professor of Chinese cultural studies that I'm not sure, I can't remember where. And he has been brought in to voice over uh, a colleague's writing on the history of Asian cinema because that person, uh, there, was a, there was a falling out over money and nobody else will take the job. Here we have just the most blatant of whitewashers. Eric, <laughs> Eric is, is very aware of this and he challenges it. But it seems to me also that there is something about the cultural artifact that he is representing that it's it's important that nobody else wanted to take on that role. Is it is it important that we think about the cultural artifact as, as a vehicle for culture? You know, are some things going to be better representation than others? That was a bit sorry. That was a bit meandering. Um, I, I yeah, it's a hard one to answer. Um, I think, I mean, just in terms of Eric, um, probably this will expose me as a hack. Um, but the really the only thought that I had was how can, how can I how can I like sort of get the you know the backgrounds of whitewashing in cinema through history through a character that doesn't sound like a crazy amount of info dump. Um, and Eric uh, does not uh, advance the narrative all that much. Um, but uh, again, it was very important for me to give him a little bit of depth, even through the comedy. So it was like a very key moment for me when I realized, well, we should probably have a white person mansplain about whitewashing um uh from an asian perspective that would just be quite funny and have that called out um uh, later on in the book uh so i'm not sure if that answers your question no but i do i do love um you're acknowledging like i think we're i think we're at a point where if we understand that certain narratives need 
exposition guy. And it's not not the presence of exposition guy, it's how deftly he is handled. And I think I think Eric is he is kind of this gorgeous outsider who when he pops in, you know you're going to learn something interesting and then he just has this quite bizarre personality that plays out and he was he was a joy to behold. Um, he is but one part. In fact, uh, you know, JK Jr. is at the center of this production, but he's being followed around by a tabloid team, um, ClickBay, the ClickBay team. They're piggybacking off his potential for, I guess, revelation and also scandal. I was really fascinated by, uh, I guess, that symbiotic nature between film and media. And I, I felt like you, you also, you take it to a, a sort of a zenith, in the unfolding story of sometimes actress, haiku streamer, and on <laughs> you can explain what haiku is in a sec, haiku streamer, and on again, off again girlfriend to JK Jr., Angela Moo. How, I, I'm really curious how deep you had to go into that world to both understand and get those depictions feeling so real. Um, how deep I had to go into the world of Chinese streaming? Oh, the well, question, I, I guess. I guess even just into that symbiotic nature between film and and streaming, and the yeah. way the way media mm. almost plays um, a, an ancillary um, yeah marketing role. Yeah, got you. Um, it it was a, it was like a gut feel sort of thing at first um, that I couldn't quite articulate. And now that I've had more time, and it was more so just, I I want to follow whoever this character is. Um, I I like she is, um, the she's described as the on again off again uh, girlfriend of J.K. Junior, um, but she is not a supporting character. In fact, um, there's probably like sort of delving into minutiae a little bit, but um, out of all of the characters in the book. Um, and I think, I mean, readers will see this when, uh, if they read the book and, um, sort of look at the title cards that introduce each character, there's sort of like the title cards in the documentary that mm -hmm. pop up on screen that describe who this person is, what their name is and what they do. Um, and this is just a long winded way of saying that, um, almost every character's title card remains the same. Uh, throughout the book, but Angela's changes quite a lot. Yeah. Um, she's first described as the on again, off, off again girlfriend of JK Jr., but she very quickly gains her own agency, her own sense of identity. Um, and that is through um, this weird world of streaming. Um, and again, that was just a gut feel thing. Uh, but the more I thought about it over time, uh, the more I realized they are actually very deeply interconnected. Um, maybe not so much in the Western industry, um, uh, so so sort of bluntly, but definitely in the East, there is a view that um, streamers and streaming stars are sort of seen as a little bit of an incubator um, for stardom. Uh, film stardom, music stardom, and it is starting to happen here. I think it, I'm probably just an old fuddy-duddy. Like, it, it is definitely happening here. Um, but uh, I think if you look at the companies that own these streaming platforms, they are also the same companies that own production, you know, studios and things like that. And so it all seemed like it was of a piece. Mm. Um, these are the people that we're seeing on our screen, whether big or small.
without giving away too much in terms of plot points, I felt like in Angela's story, you're also challenging this overarching narrative that somehow JK Jr. or someone like JK Jr. could be the breakthrough that actually changes everything. Because of course, one feature of streaming, I'm told, I'm not on TikTok, uh, which I'm assuming haiku is a little bit of an analogue of TikTok, um, is that you 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 rise and you fall based on some, you know, well, <laughs> I want to say the whim of the algorithm and, and then just sort of wink and nod to you, Siang, and we'll let people discover what that means in the story. But were you, were you kind of trying to undercut this idea of a grand narrative that somehow breakthrough will, will happen and will last? Um, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I think that, um, maybe to, to answer a slightly different question, but like by way of a detour is, um, you know, representation, we think of that word in the context of very big tentpole films, mm. crazy rich Asians is the first sort of touchstone for us. Um, and then if you go back 25 years, um, that there is the last touchstone. Um, uh, it's slipping from my my mind. Amy Tan's... Uh, oh, Joy Luck Club? Joy Luck Club, yes, thank you. Um, and then before that, another 25 years roughly to... Um, uh, a musical flower drum song, which was again an all Asian cast. Um, and, you know, the glib question is, is it going to be another 25 years before we see the next crazy rich Asians? And I don't think so because there's definitely a sequel, um, but just in terms, and there is a market and an appetite for that. Um, and I think that is very real. And that is sort of like the, I don't know, like the point man or the front runner in this whole representation business. Mm. But to me, as equally as important is representation, not from, um, you know, this person has to be the lead. This person from this ethnicity has to be the lead. We have to have X amount of like, you know, um, uh, uh, people of ethnicity. It's really just about, can we start getting some more accurate representation on the screen? Mm. Um, you know, we, we don't need that. Oh, well, we certainly do. Uh, we do need that celebration of, um, you know, ethnic representation, but that's not the only way that we can sort of approach it. Mm. Um, and I think it's a multifaceted thing where, uh, you know, I hate, hate the word, but the worker the industry gets, the more they will actually legitimately get it, that it is not just about the next crazy rich Asians. It's really just about... Um, giving everyone, uh, you know, the right level of representation on the screen. This feels like a segue. <laughs> I am speaking with Xiang Lu. He is the author of The Whitewash. He is also the co-creator of The Beige Index. In The Whitewash, we have been discussing his incredible narrative describing a maybe breakthrough blockbuster that will change the face of cinematic representation. But of course, it doesn't exist much as we might want it to. But The Beige Index does. It deals with things that are historically in our cinema-going experience. Siang, can you describe The Beige Index for me? What did you set out to achieve? Um, I think like with any 
projects, um, Andrew, as you know, it sort of starts with an extremely dumb idea that I have. Um, and that idea was, again, just the title of the project, The Beige Index. Um, it was a series of emails between, uh, sort of shot back and forth between me and my really great friend, Jonathan O'Brien. Um, and I couldn't have done this without him. Um, he is an incredible um, uh, writer. He's a multidisciplinary um, uh, creative and he's a gun developer. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that I had was just the title and it was kind of this dumb email that I shot through to him. And I was like, hey, what if we had, you know, like a Bechdel test, but for race. Um, and so like the Bechdel test uh, for um, if any of your listeners are unaware, is essentially um, a, a test that I think started in the 70s or maybe the 80s, um, which was essentially just in any film, is there a scene where there are two women talking to each other about anything that is not a man? And it's surprising and shocking how many films fail that test even today and it's not a perfect test um it's like just because you have a you like have a scene with two women talking about something that's not a man doesn't make it a feminist masterpiece but it is a good um starting point um and so the dumb idea that we had was can we do something like that but for ethnicity um and it's not you know it's not one-to-one -one. we it's not about are there two ethnic people talking about something that's not a white man um uh it, it is rather just something that we looked at from the perspective of um the credited cast mm. um you know who are the leads who are the people that imdb say are featured in the film and how many of them are white? How many of them are East Asian? How many of them are South Asian? How many of them are black? Um, and we quickly realized that this would represent a, like a crazy, like a literally crazy amount of work um, in terms of research, validation. Uh, but I think having done the whitewash and having sort of, delved into you know there's i think there's 200 odd footnotes if i'm not mistaken in the whitewash readers don't be scared off them a lot of them are jokes a lot of them are funny um but there that. was a tremendous amount mm. yeah go on Andrew. I, I was gonna say i'll second that they're the the much like I'm not sure, Siang. I'm not sure if you're a, a fan of Terry Pratchett, but Terry Pratchett fans out there, Siang's um, Siang's footnotes are in the same air, um, sort of aura of being informative, being funny, being sort of blow your mind revelatory. Um, they they are a highlight of the book. Oh, thanks, Andrew. Um, yeah, so I think uh, one thing that I forgot to mention was that I did watch every single film that was uh, referenced in the whitewash. Um, and so when it came to the idea of the beige index and realizing how much work would just be ahead of us, not only in terms of coding this, but creating a methodology. And again, it's not perfect. I think uh, like people might check the site out and there, there could be any number of um, 
you know, uh, criticisms of the way that we've structured our methodology. We have listed it out on the site if people are interested. Um, it is based on science, uh, and we thought that would be very important. Uh, we should start somewhere real rather than from the gut. Um, but uh, I think, yeah, I mean, having done so much research for the whitewash, it did actually sort of prepare me and say, you know what, we can probably pull this off. Uh, and we did. It, it represents about 22 and a half days of continuous watching in terms of uh, uh, so what the Beijing Index does. It looks at the top 250 popular films on IMDb and essentially assigns each of these films a score on our Beige-O-Meter. Mm. Uh, so we've got... Uh, uh, really just like dumb titles for these uh, Beijo meters, which start with um, Creamy, which is the lowest score. So if you have an all white cast or primarily white cast, then um, on the Beige Index, the film will get a Creamy score. So There Will Be Blood, for example, is very creamy. Uh, the next step up is Beige Fever. So that's where you're starting to get uh, more equal, or I wouldn't say more equal, but more representation in the credited cast. Uh, a lot of Morgan Freeman films are Beige Fever. Um, uh, actually, a, a little bit of trivia, the film Seven, I think it was 1997 or 1996, according to our research, uh, among the top 250 films, is the beigest film of the 20th century. And I think that's primarily because of where it's set. I think Chicago, um, and it's got real representation. There's a lot of black actors in it. Um, and sorry, back to the beige scores. There's creamy, there's beige fever. We then have, uh, we, we're sort of venturing now into the rarer territory of mm -hmm. middle beige, uh, down to brown, and the ever-elusive, if welcome to Beige Watch, uh, which I think represents maybe 1% of the top 250. Makes, makes sense. And it's all presented in these gorgeous visuals. People should go to thebeigeindex.com if they want to check it out. Um, I need to know. Uh, I would I would love to sit down with you and just go through all 250 films, Yang, but we just, we're not going to have time for that. Were there any surprises, films you weren't expecting to represent in the way that they did? Or conversely, films that just really disappointed that you, you know? Yeah, I think definitely the one that comes to mind is a bit of an older film. It is uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. Um, I hadn't watched it before, but as part of the research, um, John and I committed to watching between us every single one of the films. Um, and on the face of it, it does really well. I think it's a, it's, I think it scores high, like in the high range of beige fever. And that makes sense based on where it's set. Um, I think Southeast Asia, uh, there are a lot of Japanese um, uh, actors and I think also Southeast Asian uh, actors as well. Um, and so on the face of it, it looks very um, uh, progressive. Mm. Uh, it looks like an anomaly, and it was um, back in, I'm going to get this wrong, maybe the 50s or the 60s. It was really like the odd film out in terms of, um, accurate representation on the film ethnically. Um, but, and so our, our take was like, whoa, this, this film is like some sort of 
woke masterpiece, and it is, but um, when you look into the history of that film, you'll see, you know, the racist white attitudes in the studio. So basically what happened was Columbia Pictures actually halted filming on the Bridge on the River Kwai halfway through shooting when they realized that there was not one white woman on the cast uh, and they forced David Lean to cast a white woman uh, in order to, and, and I think this was this sexy nurse and they inserted this scene on a beach that, I mean, it, it, it sort of fits, but then when you realize what the history is, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I realize why that scene didn't quite sort of gel with the rest of the movie mm-hmm. is because they, they wanted a white woman in the film to sex it up a bit. Um, and so, you know, there was that surprising thing, a double surprise, if you will. Uh, the first being like, oh, well, this, this film is, um, incredibly sort of cool on the beige index, um, in terms of beige meter, but where is the, where's the racist anecdote? Oh, there it is. Mm. I also, I, I mean, I love that. Story. I love that story. I'm a bit disappointed, um, of course, for the, the, the film that was, you know, shooting for the stars, I guess. Um, I also couldn't help but notice as I'm, I'm reading, and it, of course, the incredible visuals are also accompanied by some very funny synopses and descriptions. Uh, and in that, there's the revelation that, you know, while we do get representation, we might see that in smaller roles, including uh, thugs, henchmen. Um, I Again, not a cinephile, so I'm going to forget which film it was, but I did I did enjoy um, the one where you. I think that we, we were noting that the actors who were meant to be playing Mexican um, people were all Italian and Greek, perhaps. And you question, what do you call a Mexican standoff that doesn't contain any Mexicans? Um, you're probably going to tell me this is a Clint Eastwood film, but I wondered then, not is there space to refine the algorithm, but is that sort of pointing the way for how representation needs to progress? You touched on this before, but. Um, a diverse cast needs to be more than just a few non-white faces in the background. Yeah, I mean, um, I think we we created the Beige Index more as a way to get people thinking and maybe laughing and thinking um, about representation in film. I don't think it's supposed to be taken all that seriously. Like I said, we do have... A methodology but i think if you look closely in any number of ways it'll fall apart um it's just one of those things where you know how can we sort of get people looking in a different way um at the films that they love mm. and just kind of yeah I, I guess just start talking about representation and where we go from here yeah i I absolutely loved it. It's it's gorgeous just to flick around, even if you are not, uh, you know, a heavy movie goer. It's thebeigeindex.com. I am speaking with one of its co-creators, Siang Lu. He's also the author. He has joined me on Final Draft. We are all about books, writing, and literary culture for his new novel, The Whitewash. Just such a joy, just having those embarrassing laugh-out-loud-in-public moments, Yang. So, I mean, I, I have to thank you for that because those are just things to be treasured. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks, Andrew. It was a pleasure. That's it for this great conversation with Siang Lu. Siang's new book is The Whitewash. It is out now from UQP, which is University of Queensland Press. 
please also check out the Beige Index. It is an absolutely fantastic companion to the whitewash and just a companion to all your film film watching. (laughs) Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch, join in the conversation. You'll find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app. It means new, great conversations. New Final Draft every time we drop. I am Andrew Popel. I'm going to be back next week with more great conversations from incredible Australian authors here on Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye for now.